Good morning, Grace. This morning's reading is James chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Thanks. Thanks, Krista. Uh, so, good morning again. Good to see you guys. Last week I gave a, a fairly lengthy recap of the beginning of James's letter, the stuff we've already covered. I'm going to give a much shorter one this morning. Uh, it's important to keep these things in our minds. Going as slowly as we are through this letter, we, we need to keep the whole of the letter in our minds to fully appreciate it. Uh, it's, it's important to keep them fresh in our minds because James continues his argument from the, the first verses into verse 18, which is our, our text today. But it's even more important because to look at just a verse here and there, <clears throat> this one is a little different, but to just look at a, a verse here and there, it's easy to lose sight of the big picture. And the big picture is that God's continual mercy and grace and goodness is driving everything that James's readers are experiencing, even though they're in a really hard place. So to those ends, first 17 verses of James in 10 sentences. You ready? You, you can take good notes here. James's readers were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Their hope was in Jesus. They were being persecuted for that. James wrote to help them live in light of the fact that God was using all of that to make them more like Jesus. James's readers were struggling to know what that meant exactly. So how do we live in light of that? James wrote to help them live in light of the fact that God gives wisdom to all who seek it in him. James's readers were having a hard time with the low place in society that their persecution had dragged them into. James wrote to help them live in light of the fact that God exalts the lowly. In the midst of all of this and on top of all of this, James's readers were being tempted by their own desire to sin. So in addition, everything that was hard uh, on the outside, they were still struggling with their own sinful desires on the inside. And James wrote to help them live in light of the fact that God never tempts his people to sin, that unchecked sin kills, and that the crown of those who remain faithful through temptation is the crown of life. And James's readers were, as we see at the beginning of 17, prone to deception, especially with regard to the relationship between their uncomfortable circumstances and God's goodness. And so James wrote, last sentence of recap anyway, James wrote to give them or to help them live in light of the fact that good only comes from God and God only gives good. Don't be deceived. All right, that's where we've been. In short, here, here's all that in one sentence. In short, and in love, James wrote to share truth, that which is true, with his struggling readers to help them put that truth into practice for their good and God's glory. All right, so in our passage for this morning, James continues on in this mission of helping these struggling Christians honor God by, he does it here, by describing God's greatest good for them and to them. What is that? 
bringing his people, them, out of death and into fellowship with him. James wants his readers to recognize the fact that since God did not withhold this greatest gift from them, he would not withhold any lesser good. That's that's the essence of this whole sermon. So I'm going to say that again. I'm going to say it a few more times throughout the sermon. But if you hear one thing, hear this. James wanted his readers to recognize the fact that since God did not withhold this greatest good, he would certainly not withhold any lesser good from them. So in the short, simple verse, we're giving a a, a, a clear and surprisingly behind-the-scenes view of God's saving work in his people. We get, we get to look behind the curtain of our salvation more than we often do. So let's pray. We need to We need to pray for a few specific things, for ears to hear this, for a mind to grasp it, for a heart to love it, and for a will to act on it. Let's pray. God, thank you once again for your word. Thank you for this short, simple uh, statement of the gospel, the good news that is ours in Jesus Christ. It's worded differently than most any other place in the Bible. It drills down deeper, although not obviously than most other places in the Bible. I pray that you would give us an appetite for this, that we could see what James means, even though he says it so simply and casually. It, it goes it goes deep. It, it helps us to see not just how we're saved, but what's underneath our salvation, what what really brings it about, what why is it that so many millions hear the gospel and don't believe, but some do? What, what's under that? What's driving that? Thank you that James, in his own simple, ex- exceedingly casual way, opens our eyes to this. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, to say, I grew up south of Detroit, and to say the lions have struggled, uh, you know, that's true, right? If you know anything about the Lions, you know that that's a true statement. But there's so much underneath that that to just say that doesn't seem like it really captures the the heart of the Detroit franchise. It's, it's depressing. Um, well, in some ways, this simple verse, verse 18, which is the heart of the sermon, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It's sort of like that. There is so much in this. There's so much more to it. And, and James just sort of says it as if, anyway, I, I hope to help you drill down in this. One of the questions I like to ask professing Christians, somebody comes and says, hey, I, I'm, I'm trusting in Jesus. I'm a, I'm a Christian. One of the questions that I like to ask, just to sort of understand what they understand that to mean, is, hey, what, what, what is God's greatest gift to you? Or, or what is the greatest thing God offers you? That's a really telling question, or at least their answers are really telling. It's, it's often that I hear someone simply say, I, I'm not sure. <laughs> Good question. I, they just acknowledge ignorance. Some have pointed to physical healing and health. Just so thankful that God is able to heal me or bring health to me or someone that I love. Some have suggested earthly prosperity, just blessing, blessing on earth. And while the majority, though, say something about salvation or heaven, almost no one gets to the heart of it, <laughs> at least in my experience. And so before I say what that is, let me ask you, what, what do you think 
is the greatest gift that God offers? And the answer, and something James is trying to help us to see here, is he gives himself. He is the greatest gift. God is the gospel, and he offers himself fellowship, friendship with him to to become his sons and daughters and in his family and in his pleasure forever and ever and ever through Jesus Christ. That's, That's what James has in mind here. There's another set of questions that I find to be helpful diagnostic tools. So I I ask those of you as well, how does God save you and why? It's really telling. What's your answer? Why? How does God save you and why? Again, there's a handful of common, mostly true answers. Typically, we choose to follow him and because he loves us, those those are fine enough. But again, it's not all that often that I meet someone who is able to confidently drill down much deeper than that. So what's underneath all of that? And again, James wants to help us with that in this passage. So in our verse for this morning, as another means of helping his readers, this isn't just cold, dead theology. He's not just giving a, a philosophy of life or something like that. He wants to help his readers navigate their current hardships in a manner pleasing to God. So are you, are you struggling in any way to know what it means to honor God, to live, if you do know, to live in a manner that's pleasing to him? Are you struggling in any way with physical trials or emotional, relational trials? James is not just writing this pie-in-the-sky stuff. He wants to help you understand how the nature of God the goodness of Christ relate to those trials. James points in help to the universal goodness of God by peeling back a couple of layers on the gospel that don't often get peeled back. And by doing so, James offers us even more confidence in the goodness, the universal goodness of God for his people. He offers even more reason to trust him no matter what comes at you in life. And he roots both deeply in the depth of the gospel. So once again, here's our passage for this morning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Simplest form, once again, his point here is that since God has given us this greatest gift of all, reconciliation with himself, why would we ever doubt? Why would his readers ever doubt, even though their lives were really hard, that God will also give us every lesser gift? Four bricks that James builds his argument on. Here's the first one. God brought us forth. It's an interesting, it's an interesting phrase. As I pointed out last week from verse 17, you can see it on the screen. God is the father of lights in both a physical sense and a spiritual sense. He is the physical father of lights and that he created every light that exists in nature, the stars, the sky, fire, and anything that produces light, God made it. He is the father of lights in that sense. And he is the spiritual father of light and that he is the source of all moral purity. Pastor Mike read in the exhortation of, of God being light. He's light in a, a sense, that sense and that he is morally pure. Indeed, we saw that God fathered physical light in order to point to the reason the stars are in the sky is to help us to learn about God's spiritual light. In the same way, 
grace, there is a physical and a spiritual sense in which God brought us forth. You see this, right? Verse 18, God brought us forth. There's a physical and a spiritual sense in which that's true. He physically brought us forth and that he knits us, every single one of us together, he knit us together in our mother's wombs. Or as Acts 17.24 says, God made or God fathered the world and everything in it. I think you know this, but no one has been born into the world apart from God's physically bringing them forth. All right? That's how God is the physical. God physically brought us forth. But just as all physical realities do, this type of bringing forth was designed by God to help picture and explain a deeper spiritual bringing forth. And it is the spiritual reality that James has in mind. Everyone who has been brought, brought forth physically has an urgent need to be brought forth spiritually by God as well. What does that mean? Physically, God brought us forth from his mind into the world with bodies and flesh and skin and bones. But what does that mean spiritually? What did James say God brought he and his readers forth from? This this is going to get uncomfortable, and then it's going to get really comfortable. So it's going to get a little awkward, and then it's going to come back. But but stay with me through the awkwardness. We need we need that to appreciate what God does for us. So here's the question: what what is it that James says God brought he and his readers forth from? Unlike what many believe today, our primary need, the thing we most need to be brought forth out of, is not a sense of loneliness. Our greatest burden, no matter how much we feel this, is not to be brought forth from a place of almost but not quite or a second-rate life. We do not mainly need to be spiritually brought forth from a lesser version of ourselves, not even heartache, not even misery, not even weakness, not poverty or addiction, not a bad marriage, not depression. God may and often does bring us forth from all of those things. But none of them are our greatest spiritual need. None of them are what James is really talking about here. Rather than any of those things, James commanded his readers, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. It's not those things. You might feel those deeply right now, and they're real, and God cares. But those are not the things you most need to be brought forth from. God had brought them forth, along with all who call upon his name, from something far, far more serious. And that's not to make light of any of those things. What is merely embedded in James' words is made clear in many other passages of the Bible. What did we need to bring what do we need to be brought forth from? Ephesians two, one through three says, You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature, this is the uncomfortable part. Nature, you were by nature children of wrath, like all of mankind. Colossians 1.21, you were once alienated from God and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. A little later in Colossians, Paul writes, chapter 2, verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. It might not seem like it, but these three passages, and there are many more like it in the Bible, Describe the worst diagnosis possible, and we all have it. <laughs> Every one of us, that this diagnoses us. You might be more afraid of or work harder to get away from other things in your life, but you shouldn't be. Grace, if you believe God's word to be true, 
Believe me when I tell you that there is nothing more horrific that you could hear than that, than the kind of death and wrath and alienation and hostility and evil mentioned in here that is in us. There is no worse condition you can have on earth. To understand it, truly understand it, is to tremble at it. In other words, our condition isn't like that of Wesley and the Princess Bride. We are not slightly alive or mostly dead. We are spiritually all dead. Dead to the point that we cannot submit to God. It gets worse. We can't even want to. We're so dead we can't even want to submit to God, Romans 8, 7 says. The spiritual death that we are all born into, this is when James says we were brought forth, is what he has in mind from this. The spiritual death that we were all born into is an uninterruptible line of corrupt choices flowing from a corrupt nature against God. Rebellious, treasonous choices. And this kind of cosmic rebellion and treason is always punished by an even more serious kind of death. Hell. Everlasting conscious torment. Again, to even begin to grasp this is to be horrified. But it is only when we begin to grasp it that we can rightly appreciate that this was the condition of helpless spiritual condemnation and death that James said God called them forth from. You've heard me say this before. You're going to hear me say this again. I've got like four phrases I use all the time, and this is one of them. If you don't understand that, that that is what you and I need to be brought forth from and all people, at best you can sing, okay, grace, <laughs> pretty good grace. If, if I was really lonely and God made me not lonely anymore, that's, that's decent grace, right? Decent grace, how okay the sounds that saved a lonely person like me. It doesn't have the same ring. But what James is trying to help us see is that the, the depravity that is in us goes far deeper than we understood. And it is that that God brings us forth from. That's awesome. With that in mind, would you listen with me to the rest of the Colossians 2 passage that I started just a minute ago? And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Jesus. That's, that's the bringing forth that James is talking about. His main point at the beginning of verse 18 is that by grace alone, through faith alone, In Christ alone, in the substitutionary suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God spiritually brought forth his people, James and his readers, and all who will call upon his name from their sin-wrought spiritual death. God saved them. He rescued them. He had caused them to be born physically and here again spiritually. The term we often use for this is This bringing forth is called regeneration. God regenerated this people. That's James's point. In just a few words, he had all of this embedded in it. James wanted his readers to remember that the greatest good of God for them, he wanted them to remember this, that they might not doubt the continual goodness of God toward them in every aspect of their lives. If God would bring them forth out of this kind of rebellion against him, If he would not withhold his son to accomplish that for him, why would he withhold anything else from them that is good? And so it is for you and me. We too are born physically alive and spiritually dead. We too need to be spiritually brought forth if we are to not know the greater death. 
that leads to the question of how does God do this? How does he do this marvelous work? How does he take people that dead in their trespasses and sins that we do not and will not and cannot submit to him? How does he bring us forth, make us come alive spiritually? Well, the next two clauses in James's in verse 18 help us to see this. The next two breaks. All right, so this, this next one is interesting. I spent a good deal of time, both formally, meaning in school, and informally on my own, working through the concept of free will. So I want you to think for a second, what is free will? Just come up, maybe you already have an idea, but come up with it in your mind. What is free will? Do you have it? Where did it come from? How can you use it? When can you use it? These are important questions. You don't need to answer any of those right now. But I spent a good deal of time on this, and I'm happy to talk with any of you more about what I've come to believe on the subject. But here's what we need to get here. I simply want to say that if passages like, listen to these passages, Romans 8, 7, Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh, which is all of ours at birth, it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. If passages like Romans 8, 7, Romans 9, 16, it, that is salvation, depends not on human will, our will, or our exertion, but on God who has mercy. If passages like that in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. And we just saw from James that we're spiritually dead, so we can't spiritually discern anything. And our passage for this morning, James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth. If these passages are true, and of course they are, this is God's word, then either our understanding of free will is wrong, our usual understanding, or our salvation is not tied to it in the way that we think it is. All right, this isn't a philosophical lecture. I just want you to see this. If, as these passages teach, we are dead in our sins such that we cannot choose God on our own, the ultimate means of our being saved from sin cannot be our ability to choose God on our own. We need help even for that. It is precisely because we cannot bring ourselves forth, therefore, that James's words are such good news. This is such good news. It is precisely because we can't bring ourselves forth any more than we can make ourselves physically born. We can't just choose that. <laughs> In the same way, we cannot choose to make bring ourselves spiritually forth. That's why this is such good news. God brought us forth, is what James says. In my experience, this is one of those places. It was for me, and I'll, I'm not going to tell you here, but I'm happy to tell you the, the wrestling that, that I had to do to go through this. But in my experience, this is one of those places where we will either bend our understanding to match God's word, or we will bend God's word to match our own understanding. I plead with you today and always to let God's word reign every single time your thinking of the world, yourself, God, anything comes in seeming conflict with God's word. Every time, bend your will to God's. Every time. Don't do it hastily. Be careful. Thoroughly study the passage so that as best as you can, you understand it as it's meant to be understood. And then change your thinking every time to match God's word about anything and everything. 
With all that in mind, the second thing to see in verse 18 is the fact that we were brought forth from spiritual death into eternal life, not ultimately by our own will, but by the will of God. We learned in the parenting time of G to G last week, really simply, we read this in a book. I thought it was helpful. Every other religion prescribes the manner in which mankind is meant to bring himself forth by his own will and actions. That's the nature of every other religion. But Christianity, however, describes the manner in which God brings us forth by his own will. We just learned the term regeneration, God causing us to be spiritually born, bringing us forth spiritually. Here, I'm going to give you another term, and it's election. That's God bringing us forth by his own will. And even if it requires some recalibration to see, this is the best news you'll hear all day. It really is. Well, this might not sit well with some of our sensibilities. And while it may force us to reconsider our understanding of certain aspects of our salvation, the Bible consistently describes our salvation as the result of God's election. Colossians 3.12, 1 Corinthians 1.27. This is all, you can get this online. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Ephesians 1.4, Ephesians Ephesians 1.2, 2 Timothy 2.10, Titus 1.1, 1 Peter 1.1, 1 Peter 2.9, 1 Peter 5.13, Revelation 17.14, continually, over and over again. And it describes election as God's right as God and a great source of comfort for God's people. Practically, that calling forth, that, that calling us forth was of his own will, means that God did not need to save us. That's humbling. It also means that apart from God's help, we would never choose to trust in Jesus. That's relieving that he would do that for us. And it means that being saved or or brought forth is not based on our own worth. We didn't deserve it. He didn't choose us because we have merit that warrants it. And that's why we sing Amazing Grace. God brought forth James and his readers and all who are brought forth of his own will. If you will ever be spiritually born, it will not be because you figured out a secret or because you were smart enough. I studied a a religion that they felt like you would be reconciled to God by hanging enough weight on your body so they'd pierce themselves and hang weights from it. It will not be because you've hung enough weight from your body. It will not be because you're smart enough. It will not be because you were able to do enough good things to earn God's favor. If you have or will come forth ever, it will ultimately be because God brought you forth of his own will, James says, and for his own purposes. All right, that leads us to the third brick. I hope I've helped you to see that what James was offering his readers was something truly remarkable. What he's reminding them of was spectacular. The good news that God had rescued them from their sin and rebellion and made them alive in Jesus while they were powerless to do so on their own. I hope. I hope to have helped you see that. I also hope to have helped you to see that while certain aspects of the manner in which God does that are different than you might have heard, they are better than you might have believed. And I hope to have helped you to see that the Bible is not subtle about these things. Okay. But I also hope you're thinking, well, what in the world does that mean? (laughs) I hope you're also thinking, okay, wait, wait a minute, because I'm thinking of some other passages in the Bible. I'm even thinking of my own experience. I'm, I'm pretty sure I chose to follow Jesus. And I'm pretty sure that if I, if I don't, I, I wander away consistently. 
If it is God who brings us forth, and if he does it of his own will, are, are we just robots? That sounds robotic. Do we have any real say in this matter? Do we have any actual will of our own? Well, Grace, just as the Bible is clear on the things we've already covered, it is also clear on the fact that, yes, we must choose to follow Jesus. Nothing James or the rest of the Bible suggests that we do not need to choose God of our own will. The question is, how does that become our will? Indeed, anyone who does not hope, choose to hope in God, will not be brought forth, will not be saved. It is good to ask, therefore, how does God do this? How does he bring us forth of his will? Again, the third foundational brick in James's argument is that God does so by the word of truth, which we must receive in faith by our will. So look at the next clause in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. What does that mean? What is the word of truth, and how does God bring forth his people by it? The word of, this tr- the word of truth in this sense is nothing other than the gospel of Jesus. Read a little further in that same Colossians 2 passage. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven, and here's the key, having forgiven all us all our trespasses, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's the word of truth. At Grace, we say it, same thing, just a little differently. We've summarized this in just a few points. The word of truth in the sense that James uses it here is the awesome reality that God is greater than you could ever imagine. Greater than you could ever imagine. No matter how big your view of God is, no matter how great, he's greater still. Not only that, but he created you to love and enjoy him forever. This this sense of fulfillment and satisfaction and joy that you and I seek in so many different places, God made us to find it in the one place it can be found, in him. But there's a problem. None of us love and enjoy God rightly. As we saw earlier, we, we're all corrupted in our natures and therefore we're corrupted in our choices. And because we do not love and enjoy God rightly, we stand condemned before God. But because God is loving and fair and great, he punished his son Jesus for our sins. And we can be forgiven of our sins by choosing to trust in Jesus. Grace, God is determined to call forth a people for himself out of our spiritual death of his own will. And he has chosen to do so by making us spiritually alive, opening our spiritual eyes and filling our spiritual hearts in such a way that allows us to see what is really there. Why do we choose God? Because he causes us to come alive to see him for who who he really is and us for who we really are. Prior to this, in our state of spiritual death, we don't have spiritual eyes to see and ears to hear. The gospel was folly to us. But when God causes us to come forth, when he causes us to come alive, he enables us for the first time to see things as they are. And when that happens, when that happens, Grace, we can do nothing but run to him for mercy and grace, for help and healing, for forgiveness, and he will give it to us. He gives it to us freely in Christ. Everything in us, when we have eyes to see, longs for the mercy and grace of God. We must choose to trust God, but with real spiritual sight, the choice is the most obvious thing there is. And he does all of that once again 
always and only through the word of truth, the gospel. Again, countless millions have heard these things over the past millennia. Most have rejected it as folly. But every single person who has trusted, who has received this word of truth and faith has been brought forth from spiritual death to everlasting spiritual life. Would you trust God today? Would you trust him today that you too might walk in the newness of life that James speaks of here? All this, again, probably means that much of what you've believed about how we're saved is true. It is. But it also means that, probably means that there's more underneath it than you'd ever thought. This is a phrase I love. I'd love for you all to learn this. It has been said that you are more wicked than you ever dared believed, but more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared hope. As I said at the beginning, James gives us a a bit more of a behind-the-scenes view of our salvation than we're used to. And the main reason for doing so is to give us a sustainable hope, an an unshakable hope in this life. Do you see how James' teaching does that? If his readers or anyone's salvation depended ultimately on our own choices, we'd be without hope. (laughs) We wouldn't have any hope. If it were up to us to bring ourselves forth and to keep ourselves brought forth, we're in big trouble. But, But James is helping us to see that there's something far greater. If there's salvation, if our salvation depends on God's choice, in God's power, in God's keeping, in God's transforming, There's no safer place we can be, no matter what happens to the world around us. James wanted to make sure that they weren't deceived about this in order that they would be strengthened in joy through their trials. That's awesome. If you don't know what's awesome, talk to somebody next to you. Look around. Does anyone look pretty excited right now? They probably know this is awesome. Talk to them afterwards. James wrote to help his readers appreciate and live in light of the fact that because God had given them this greatest good, the good of their salvation, he would not withhold any lesser good from them. They could trust him in everything since he'd accomplished for them this greatest thing. Last brick, shortest brick. Listen to the rest of uh, verse 18. He brought us forth by his own will. He brought us forth of his own will by the gospel and for a purpose that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. To be a, a kind of first fruits, this is James writing to a group of people in the first century. To be a kind of first fruits of his creatures means that James and his readers were among the very first to hope in Jesus. The first to know this mystery that Paul says had been kept hidden for ages and generations. Many more would come, including you and me. And the whole earth will eventually come forth again. God brought the earth into existence, and he's going to remake it, just like he remade us, according to his will. But James and his readers were in a special place. They were the first among the first harvest set apart by God for God. This, too, was meant to give them comfort and hope and strength to these scattered saints. While those in the early church were the first fruits in a unique way, all who are brought forth are brought forth into God's family. We are all his chosen possession his royal priesthood, his holy people. We are his sons and daughters. We all receive forgiveness of sins, freedom from corruption, sanctification of our bodies and souls in the sustaining grace of God. Ultimately, the greatest gift that God gives, though, is that we are all brought into fellowship with him. If you've been at grace for any length of time, you've heard many times 
that the best news of all, again, said it earlier in the sermon, the best news of all is that God is not that God gives us the things we might want, but that he gives us himself to glorify and enjoy him forever. He is the only true satisfaction in our soul for our souls. All of this is the fruit of Jesus suffering death and resurrection on our behalf. So praise God, Grace. Find comfort and hope in these things for times of trouble. Don't be deceived. If you are in Christ, God is for you in every single way. Only good comes from God and only good only comes from God and only good comes from God. I didn't say that right. Only good comes from God and good only comes from God. And in that knowledge, be not hearers only, but doers also.